This week, my guest is Jonathan David Lewis. He's the author of Brand vs. Wild, a book about building resilient brands in harsh business environments. We chat about how jazz bands, not orchestras, are the right analogy for resilient businesses. Sounds intriguing, doesn't it? And it is. Welcome to episode 133 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business, and for discussing topics on all things finance. And now, here's your host, Roger Edwards. Hey, folks. Here we are with another Marketing and Finance podcast episode. Thanks, as always, for downloading or streaming the show. I know you're bombarded with content from every angle on every platform these days, so I really do appreciate you choosing this show. This week, I'm chatting to the author of a new book, Brand vs. Wild, a fascinating look at how companies of all sizes must adopt a different approach to survive the challenges the world throws at them. It's really opened my eyes to how different the challenges we face are now than they were a few years ago and how those challenges will change again in future. Jonathan and I chat about how boardroom members go through similar challenges and emotions as the survivors of a plane crash on a mountainside, how the smallest thing can become existentially dangerous for companies, why systems design is now a key part of marketing, how there's no foolproof solution to wild but you can increase your resilience, how old concepts of success don't work anymore, for example, flexibility is better than efficiency, and why improvisation is important at the front line. Jonathan is the author of Brand vs. Wild, Building Resilient Brands for Harsh Business Environments. He's a Forbes contributor and a turnaround expert at McKee Wallwork & Company, an integrated marketing firm that helps stalled, stuck and stale brands rekindle growth. Jonathan honed his skills during the lean years of the Great Recession, helping brands navigate today's unforgiving new business paradigms. Jonathan's opinions are highly sought by numerous business and marketing publications, including Forbes, Digiday and Advertising Age, where he explores the factors that lead to stalled growth and the principles proven to help companies navigate the ambiguities and dangers of the brand wilderness. So let's get straight into that interview with Jonathan right here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Jonathan, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you doing? Where are you Skyping me from today, Jonathan? I think you're way over there in the United States, aren't you? I am. I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Wow, I've never been to that part of the United States. My sister lives in Los Angeles, so I guess I'd probably fly over you on the way to see her. Yeah. Well, well next time uh, next time you're in the neighborhood, swing by, I'll... I'll uh, give you some green chili. Can't, can't, can't get it anywhere else. Jonathan, you've recently written a book. It's called Brand vs. Wild, which is a fascinating title. I think the subheading is Building Resilient Brands for Harsh Business Environments and would really like to dig deep into the book, where the ideas came from and how it can be applied to businesses of all kinds, of course, my my speciality with this podcast is focusing on financial services professionals, but 
I do have a wider audience as well. But before we get to the book, before we get to what you're doing about and, and what your company's doing, Jonathan, give me a bit of background about yourself, where you came from, where you're going, what your ambitions are, and basically what makes Jonathan David Lewis tick. Sure. You know, um, I grew up on an Indian reservation, tiny little town in Washington State here in the States, and um, <clears throat> moved to New Mexico to finish school and uh, started my career in advertising. And, and you know, it, it's it's kind of interesting that the book is called Brand vs. Wild, but the wilderness itself has always been really a big part of my life in, in a variety of ways. You know, on the, the re- Indian reservation called Nia Bay, Washington – Probably one of the top five most rugged, beautiful places on earth. No exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Um, very remote. You know, New Mexico, one of the most uh, rugged, wild, beautiful places in America. Um, but also, my career really took off and was made and molded through the Great Recession. And, you know, we were faced as marketers with just incredible pressures from our clients where, you know, our budgets were being halved. There were in, there's enormous demands on us. At the same time as we're getting all this pressure, the technology we were working with and, and all of the media channels that we were trying to use were just dramatically changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of these different pressures were falling on me and my company at the same time. And we've we've always had to really – to operate at the level we operate, we always had to be at the bleeding edge. We had to understand – step back and understand what in the world's going on here. Mm-hmm. And that's really the, the core of who we are as a company. In our, We have a niche where we work with stalled, stuck, and stale brands. Mm-hmm. And also the core of the book, Brand vs. Wild, which is really an attempt to step back and say, what is this wild? What is going on? You know, there's so many incredible, there's so much turmoil in politics and technology and business today. For many of us, it's just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And and our goal is to try to understand what's going on and then and then get through it ourselves and also help our clients um, not just survive, but actually thrive in the midst of this chaos. So are we actually saying that that people are just finding it quite hard to cope with all the information that's being thrown at them at the moment, all the politics, all the, I guess, the scary things that are happening in the world, plus all the advertising messages and day to day noise that surrounds us? Yeah, it's just it's just overwhelming. It's just too much. And you know, it's 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 kind of a joke now if you look mm-hmm. at the headlines in America with all the the political turmoil going on. There's some bombshell, you know, hitting daily, if not twice a day. And you know, if you're trying to keep up as especially as a, a marketing professional or a business professional, if you're trying to keep up and you know, you're doing your best to make sure that your you and your your products stay relevant, it's it's too much and when when you're kind of feeling this this feeling of over being overwhelmed it can be very isolating mm-hmm. and you sort of fall into this feeling that you know somebody out there sort of gets what's going on but i don't and um per- you, sometimes you kind of just walk away and wash your hands of it which is all, you know not the right answer disengaging is not the right answer but if you try to get into it and and understand it it can also be overwhelming so Beyond all of the, the strategies and, and business best practices that are important to be successful, there's a real emotional aspect to what's going on today. Mm-hmm. And Brand versus Wild and, and really what we do and what I do is just starting with the recognition that none of it really matters if you and your team 
are messed up. You know, if you're unhealthy, if your headspace is not in the right space. So um, that, that's really the heart of the book and our practice. Where does the idea from the book come from, Jonathan? You know, we've, we've actually, as a company, we're celebrating our 20th year in and, business. And the, and the company's called McKee Wallwork, is that right? McKee Wallwork and Company, yeah. yeah. So we're celebrating 20 years and... About 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, we made the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies list. Mm-hmm. And we, we thought we made it. You know, here we are. We're, uh, you know, our name's in lights. We're growing fast. Nothing can stop us. And not kidding, uh, you know, days after we made that list, we began to stall as a company and our growth uh, just kind of dissipated. Right. And so we, we began to kind of experience for ourselves our own wilderness. And during that time, we, we had about 98% turnover, which is just killer for a professional services firm, for any firm. During that time, we didn't know what else to do. So we actually we had access to about 20 years worth of winners of this Inc. 500 fastest growing companies list. And, and so we said, let's just go to the research. And we, we conducted this research to try to understand why are these successful companies – you know, why do some of them face adversity and get through it and grow? And why do others face that adversity and decline and, mm-hmm. and kind of fall apart? Mm-hmm. And we discovered at that time that there were seven factors that affect growth in businesses. Right. Over the next 10 years, we, we conducted another national study to confirm that. We, we wrote two of our books. Our third book, Mine, just came out. And really the heart of, of all of that research and all of our experience working with Stahl, Stuck, and Stell brands is – in understanding of those seven factors, three of the seven are external. They're, they're what we call the wild. Mm-hmm. So they're the economy, aggressive competition, disruptive um, dynamics in your industry. These are the factors that dislodge companies, that disorient companies and, and make us feel lost. So that's the wild. What really got us interested, what really kind of made the light bulb go off was when we discovered four of the statistically significant factors that affect growth in business are internal. They're within our control. And they're often things that we overlook that we that many of us even might dismiss. And these are those four internal dynamics that are very predictable. Um, when you look at how um, you know people react to disruption or challenges, it's very predictable how how these four internal dynamics will play out over time. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what got us going for the book was um, a couple of years ago. I was reading in a a magazine called Outdoor Magazine, and it, the whole thing was about survival psychology. And I'm reading these these incredible survival stories, just you know things that that you wouldn't think humans are capable of doing. And I'm looking at the actual the latest in survival psychology and I'm noticing there are so many correlations with our research and that's when the light bulb went off that's when I began this year and a half journey of, of doing the research and writing the book and what we discovered at the end of the day is that really uh, you know there's very little difference psychologically between a group of people that might crash land on top of a mountain or you know get lost in the desert and a group of business leaders in a boardroom trying to tackle some sort of challenge. Both groups go through the same predictable reaction to disruption or challenges. Wow. I'm, I'm sure I'm, – I'm trying to think back now. I'm sure I saw a film once um, of, a, of a plane crash on a mountainside. It, something really horrible happened. They probably resorted to cannibalism or something. I'm sure that was in the back of my head. Are you, are you talking about that sort of correlation there, that sort of um, comparison? 
Definitely, and that's that's. Uh, I think you're thinking of Alive. Ah, that's um, the one, Alive, which was in it. the '70s, yeah. and that's that's actually one of the the stories that's featured in the book. Right. Um, but and and that's sort of kind of the, one of the most famous over the last few years. Uh, but if if you go back 150 years or you go back one year, you see the same very same uh, reaction psychologically as these groups of people face these extreme scenarios. Alive is is so fascinating um, simply because, you know, it got famous because they did have to resort to cannibalism, which is unfairly, often unfairly characterized, you know, mm-hmm. when you read about it. Um, it wasn't just this, you know, Lord of the Flies crazy <laughs> situation, you know, where people are, are fending for themselves. It was actually quite a, a beautiful, uh, pretty amazing story of watching these young men who largely were part of a rugby team, mm-hmm. how they organized themselves, how they fell apart and then kind of rallied, how leaders, different leaders arose within the ranks, um, what what role hope played, what role organization played. Um, all of these things were really, really important as they survived for over 70 days mm. uh, on, on top of this mountain, which literally had zero sustenance. The only thing they had were, 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 was the snow itself, which they melted on top of the plane. Mm-hmm. There was there were no vegetation, no animals. They had nothing, yet they were able to survive. And they didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't where they, um, you know, turned on each other. No. They really came together. It was pretty, pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And and so the the comparison is you've got a boardroom situation, um, an executive t- a team or C level people in companies facing some sort of economic crisis, some sort of branding crisis, the fact that businesses might be nosediving. And you're drawing parallels between people surviving in the wild, like those guys on the mountainside, and people surviving in the boardroom. Is that the is that the angle you're taking with the book? Yeah, it is. That, that's the premise, and that's what the research tells us, both our, our independent business-focused research and the latest in survival psychology are telling us that, that that group of people in that boardroom are really psychologically very there's very little difference between you know them and the, those survivors out in the wilderness and knowing that knowing how you will react and knowing how to stop sort of this tailspin that many groups go through mm-hmm. is vi- vital as we we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow no I mean, of course not crisis after crisis <laughs> is really kind of the name of the game and you look at united um, you, you look at all you know the airlines in, <clears throat> that are kind of going through various uh, crises right now with the videos being released. You look at Pepsi's uh, recent gaffe with their kind of weird Kendall Jenner video. Yeah, there's just it, it either self-inflicted or it's it's inflicted upon you, and it's going to happen regardless of who you are. And knowing how to navigate that is is fundamentally just vital today. So how do boardrooms how do executives c-level people come together to solve these problems is it maybe worth using the united airlines example as an example yeah you know what's funny about that is they they kind of um, jumbled things at first where the ceo issued that half apology and just got ripped apart for the euphemisms he mm-hmm. used for you know how his own employees handled the situation uh, ultimately had to go all in and just completely basically say we screwed up something's wrong here we're going to work on it mm-hmm. and then you you know it's kind of funny when you look at the collateral damage even other airlines videos started coming out with other airlines because 
people are just frustrated with that industry. It's just such a mess. I guess a great the, the United example is a good case in point simply because it's a good example of how you know you things could be going so well for you and your company, and the the smallest thing today can become existentially dangerous for you. Where yeah. in in another situation, this might be a minor incident where you know there's no video or, or something but in this case somebody just filmed it on their phone got it out to the press and all of a sudden the whole world is talking about it so th- that's just another example of how vulnerable our companies are today mm-hmm. and how you know the the ones that are going to make it through and 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 be proud of who they are and what they provide really have to up their game it's not enough to put out some fancy slogan anymore you have to actually be the company that you're saying you are. And that goes all the way through your policies, procedures, your hiring practices, uh, everything, customer service, everything. And sort of what we call it today in in my my field is systems design has really become a really important part of marketing where, you know, we are branding companies and we put together marketing campaigns, but that's such a a, that's a that's an important piece of it, but that's not it anymore. Systems design requires us to think through an entire, uh, you know, system of interactions between you and your customer, where they can they have the power now. They can choose when to interact with you, choose when to mute your ad, ensuring that they have this consistent experience that's that's true, that's accurate, and is positive. Um, really changes the game. It yeah. changes how we have to solve things for companies. Is it actually possible to create a foolproof system, though, Jonathan? I'm I'm just thinking about the United um, Airlines example again, and you you know you if you ever watch a program like um, Air Crash Investigation or something like that, you'll 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 have this his, history of a of a plane crash. All the investigators will go in and they'll have their um, tiny little magnifying glasses out and they'll they'll investigate <laughs> all the little tiny pieces of machinery. They'll listen to the di- the dialogue from the cockpit. They'll listen to the the uh, voice recorder. They'll see all the data, and it's usually a whole sequence of things that maybe two years ago somebody didn't screw a, a bolt on properly, and then. Two years later, there was a bit of a, um, a extra pressure put on the tailplane, and then all of a sudden, the disaster happens. And they always mm. seem to trace it back to some almost like unpredictable little thing that happened before. Is it possible to to create systems and design systems that almost uh, allow for that, or you know, is it just unfortunate that? This happened to United Airlines. They overbooked the flight. They shouldn't have overbooked the flight. But in the end, things got out of control. The security people were a bit heavy-handed. And all of a sudden, United comes crashing down because they didn't say sorry. They didn't – well, they said sorry, but they didn't really sound like they meant it. Could that really have been predicted? And could they have dug themselves out of that hole better if they put processes in place? Yeah, you know, part of the part of the challenge for United, it's really the same challenge for the whole their whole industry, is that there's a systemic problem. It's not it's not just United, and mm-hmm. it's not just their employees. Systemically, the whole system is almost anti-customer. Mm-hmm. It's not built for us. Mm-hmm. It's built it's built for it's built for them in a way, but it's not even 
you know, even they have a hard time in their own system. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a, I read a fascinating article recently that kind of went through the history of uh, pricing structures and the government getting involved and trying to fix things and sometimes making it worse, sometimes making it better. And that is a systemic problem. What I can say is, you know, there's no foolproof anything. No. That, that's, a, that's certainly not going to happen. However, there, there is, um, today, there is an ability to increase your resiliency. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, is one of the core tenets of successful companies and, and professionals in today's modern economy is it's not about strength. Mm-hmm. It's not about size or longevity. It doesn't matter how long you've been in business. It's about resiliency. Mm-hmm. And that requires a very different set of skills and focuses. And so you asked about systems that, that you know, are there systems that can actually handle this? And what's really cool is there are. Mm-hmm. There are actually systems out there that are built to take blows and still make it pass, you know, to absorb risk, mm-hmm. to absorb change. And I don't know, have you seen La La Land? I've not the, seen that yet. No, it's, it's on. It is on my watch list on Amazon. I have to say, <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's pretty good. But one of my favorite scenes, um, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything here. One one of my favorite scenes is where the the lead male actor, the lead female actor, are on this sort of. Um, they're hanging out together at a jazz bar, and the female actor doesn't doesn't really like jazz, doesn't get it. You know, it's elevator music, and so the lead male actor decides to. Uh, he he's a musician and just loves jazz. He decides to try to explain, you know, why jazz is so cool. Mm-hmm. And through his explanation, he starts going into, um, you know, you're seeing the jazz band play. He starts describing how at one time there's there's uh, both harmony and there's tension. And at one point the the saxophone is leading. The next point the trumpet leads. And and how there's this fluid system happening before our very eyes that that absorbs new information and actually works with it. And jazz, in a lot of ways, is really a great example of how businesses need to think of themselves and model themselves for the future. In that, over the last 100 years, you know, business is really focused on trying to be the biggest, best orchestra in the world. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, top-down command and control. Uh, everyone's reading from the same sheet, sheet music. Policies and procedures are meant to. Uh, you know, or really treat employees like zombies mm-hmm. rather than empowering them to mm-hmm. fulfill any sort of mission. And the problem with orchestras is what happens when somebody in the um, in the audience stands up and starts playing their own violin, mm-hmm. and maybe five people start doing that, then twenty people, then a hundred people. How does the orchestra function? Well, as we know, the orchestra doesn't; it falls apart. <laughs> you know, it's meant to be; it's meant for a, a very static system of enjoying that piece of music. Where a jazz band, on the other hand, while it requires you know incredible skill in music, it actually thrives on new information. Mm-hmm. It thrives on the vibe of the crowd, and on you know a, a musician can jump on stage who they weren't expecting and, and start playing their own melody, and the the band will actually modulate and change and adapt. And so jazz is one of those systems that that is actually set up to absorb change, and not only that. It revels in ambiguity. It revels in uncertainty and change. Jazz does not exist without it. And so 
when looking at how to apply that to business, you know, there's there's a few different examples of companies that have actually really tried to apply this. Whole Foods is one that that in many ways has really adopted this jazz-like system of of building a business model. Mm-hmm. And in their case, while they're facing their own problems from kind of a differentiation standpoint, they're not they're not that different anymore. Um, the way the company is structured, they actually Every single employee in Whole Foods has access to every P&L for every department and every store in the entire uh, organization. Mm-hmm. And every every employee and, and um, department is responsible for their own. And so you have this system where it's really kind of circles within circles within circles where if a department is failing, then the company doesn't have to try to subsidize that. Or if a, a store fails, the whole company doesn't fail because of that. Mm-hmm. Where you contrast that with something like, you know, famously Borders Books, um, who went out of business through the recession, they had a very top-down command and control system in place. They had uh, high inventory of books. They had low cash, and they had signed all of these these lease deals that were just insane. So that when they hit the recession, that was what dislodged them. That was the wild they faced. They were completely unprepared. They were not liquid. They were not resilient because they had all this inventory and these terrible leases. They couldn't even go through the bankruptcy process and reorganize. Mm. They they just fell apart. So it's it's really important today to to not just look at your challenge or your problem and say, okay, how do I fix this using my current paradigm? Perhaps we need to completely rethink our business model paradigm and become more like a jazz band rather than really operating like an orchestra my own personal view of a jazz band is improvisation takes quite a large part of it so are you are you saying that there's an element of improv here yeah and and you know what's important about the, the improv is there's this this interesting concept of mission not not like a business mission statement but but more like a military mission mm-hmm. and um the it's kind of a negative example but the germans in world war ii uh, really understood this as well as others like the Mongols and, and others where they empowered their front line to achieve the mission as long as the from the top echelons all the way down to the front line understood what everybody was trying to achieve then they allowed the front lines to achieve that in whatever way they thought was best that's empowerment mm-hmm. rather than prescriptive thinking mm-hmm. that's imp- improvisation so in many ways, you know, people kind of attribute the success, the early success in World War II to the Germans in terms of superior firepower or the Blitzkrieg strategy. And those were the pieces of it. But really, one of their core successes was that they enabled their front lines to when they when they hit an unforeseen obstacle, they didn't have to phone, you know, command and control and get permission to do something. Mm-hmm. They they made the decision on the battlefield themselves. And you see this in other organizations today where famously, uh, you know, REI will almost take back anything that you buy from them. <laughs> or <laughs> Starbucks will will are empowered to, to do anything to make you, you know, have a good customer experience. They'll throw away, you know, hundreds of dollars of, of inventory or thousands of dollars of merchandise to make you happy. Because at the end of the day, it's about making the customer happy, knowing that they'll come back and, and spend ungodly amounts of money. So there's a lot of examples of companies who actually trust their employees, empower their employees, because from the top to the front, 
uh, everybody's on the same page and understands that concept of mission. Yeah, I, I was very um, privileged about, this is probably about 10 years ago now, Jonathan, but I, I came on a tour of the United States. It was a great week. It was called the Top Dog Tour. And we went and visited quite a few big brands in the States. We saw we saw Enterprise Rent-A-Car. That's one that stuck in my brain. Um, we saw the Ritz-Carlton chain of hotels. And Ritz-Carlton always stuck in my mind because... Every single employee of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel is empowered to spend, I can't remember what the exact figure was, it might be $100 or something like that. If a customer has a problem, then every member of staff, whether it's a cleaner, whether it's a, um, a bellhop, whether it's a manager, whether it's a barman, whether it's a restaurant maitre d', they can spend $100 to sort that client out without having to refer it up the line. And that meant that the staff felt empowered, they felt happy, and because they were happy, the customers were happy. Whereas if you have a business that says you will not do anything without asking your boss or ask, or putting it up the line, you know, then it becomes more of, I'm sorry, but the computer says no. And that's when people start getting unhappy and they start they start complaining, I guess. And that's a that's a perfect contrast. If you look United Airlines, yeah, and then you put Ritz Carlton next to it, and the the way they view themselves and they view their employees and they disempower or empower their employees, and you know the famous line for Ritz Carlton is "Ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen." Yeah, and even that line itself, the self respect that's contained within that line, and then allowing their employees to spend up to a thousand dollars to make a customer happy. Mm -hmm. The empowerment and the respect and the trust because their employees understand what everybody's trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, on United Airlines, you know, there's almost disdain for their employees. Mm -hmm. And there's other structural issues. You know, there's there, you'll hear them complain about unionization and how everybody's got their hands tied. And there's just a lot of structural problems there. But clearly, management doesn't trust the front lines. Front lines are not empowered. They probably don't think of themselves very well because of that. There's not a lot of self-respect just as much as, you know, it's hard to respect your customer if you don't respect yourself. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing how even just a change in perception, more than any, any, you know, brilliant new strategy or business model, a change in perception of how an employee thinks of themselves um, can actually completely fundamentally change your success rate as, as a brand. And again, I think that, uh, I mean, I, I, I came back from that Top Dog tour and actually was involved in a startup company in the United Kingdom. We, we, we quite blatantly ripped off the um, Ritz-Carlton's idea of ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. We even nicked their idea of a, of a they call it a lineup they have every day where the employees get together and have a almost like a briefing meeting. We called it a jump start. And I remember having this conversation with, you know, and people were a bit worried. If you empower the staff to spend a thousand dollars or a hundred pounds or whatever it might be, then they're going to be spending thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds and they'll bankrupt us. But the whole mm -hmm. point is, that you don't have Ritz-Carlton employees dishing out $1,000 every five minutes. Because the, because the, the uh, culture has become so empowered, it probably doesn't happen that often. It's just that it can happen if it needs to. But if your mindset is we can't let our staff have the authority to spend that money because they'll spend it, then I think you're, you're doomed before you even get started. Is there even a small way that an employee can feel empowered so that they can then give that 
attitude to the customer because that mm. and that's part of the fundamental problem here is a lot of companies just totally lose sight of their customer it, yeah. it becomes the situation where it's not even about them anymore and that is very dangerous this is really interesting jonathan now in in three weeks time in three weeks today in the united kingdom i'm doing a speech at a conference um it's the content marketing academy conference and my i have this hobby horse about companies making everything complicated especially from a marketing point of view and I've worked in startups I've worked in big corporates and I've worked in companies in between and I can see progression from a startup where everyone has a shared vision where everybody knows who the customer is where everybody knows what the message is the mission if you like want to call it and they're successful because of a lot of the things that you've said because they're empowered and because they they do the right thing by the customer and then, of course, they start to become successful and they go into stage two when they start to grow and they start to employ people from maybe different industries. Those people perhaps come in, they haven't got that immediate shared vision and it starts to become diluted. I guess I'm just ex- explaining your um, metaphor of the audience now that I'm thinking about it. You get all these other people coming in playing the violin, etc., and eventually it starts to become more bureaucratic. It starts to become more complicated. And then you enter the third stage, which is big corporate, where there's silos and matrix management and, and, a, and a C-level people who, who aren't joined up. And everybody loses their empowerment. Everybody forgets who the customer is. And it all becomes about making sure that we control the staff or we make sure that the, the literature has to be printed in a certain shade of blue and it, you forget all of those things that made you successful in the first place. And the speech that I'm trying to make at this conference is to how to avoid that happening. Um, so what, what, what would you advise? And, and, and I presume some of this comes out in the book. What would you advise companies to do to effectively retain that small startup mindset, no matter how big? they get that that's the question isn't it yeah (laughs) when when you look at um you know i think that might be one of the major challenges that amazon is is entering into Mm -hmm. as you know they have this they've quite famously become known for having a pretty cutthroat um culture yeah but they they also you know they emphasize failing fast and and all of those precepts of silicon valley Mm -hmm. but they're also getting pretty big Mm. um to the point where uh, you know those the, some of those bureaucratic problems almost become inevitable with size. Mm-hmm. And Mark Parker, uh, the CEO of Nike, has talked a bit about this. He talked about it. He, there's an interesting interview he had with Fast Company, where they just were talking about adaption, innovation, and and how again, how does a big company try to do this? And he made the point that uh, the the bigger you are, certainly the harder this gets, and that not only does the size itself slow you down because of the layers? But the success itself is a major vulnerability because, number one, you get arrogant, and arrogance kills you in the wild. Yeah. Arrogance is the – arrogance is is the, you know, the first thing that will get you when, when you're facing this modern economy, and there's a lot of it out there. Yeah. But secondly – um, you, as you've been successful, you begin to believe that what made you successful will continue to make you successful, mm-hmm. and that has never been more of a lie. Mm. Where the game 
is is changing fundamentally. The underpinnings of what makes a successful company in this economy, in our shared economies, is changing. Mm-hmm. That that is what's causing this turmoil. So if you really believe, you know, that your MBA education at Harvard is is valid today, in many ways it's outmoded. Yeah, you know, it's just not true anymore. That's why you get your twenty somethings becoming billionaires because they're tapping. They may not understand it, but they're tapping into something um, that our MBA mentality is is just missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're probably actually listening to what customers want and reacting to what customers want rather than creating some massive intellectual exercises. You know, Harvard people probably go on about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Boston grids and Ansoff's matrices, whereas your young billionaire probably just listened to a few people in a coffee shop saying what they wanted and went away and built it without thinking about it. Right. Possibly. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and the other attitude that's important is uh, Mark Parker talks about looking at, at this change and this uncertainty as an opportunity, and it's really counterintuitive. It's really hard, and that's why big companies have a difficulty with this because they're entrenched in the status quo. Mm. You know, They have this web of partnerships, and it's just really difficult for big companies. But um, he says, look at it. Look at the pace of change as opportunity because if if we feel like things are going too fast and we can't keep up, then they feel that way. Even the Elon Musks of the world, you know, they it's not like they're they have some secret sauce nobody else has. They they are feeling overwhelmed and they're hoping they're making bets themselves. So if they're feeling that way, we're feeling that way. So embrace it because what it actually means is as the status quo is disrupted, that creates new opportunity, new markets. You can advance your cause when things change. Where if things are always static, if they're just stuck in the status quo, then it really is just sort of a, a battle over half a percent of market share. So you've given me quite a lot of things to think about today, Jonathan, and I'm certainly going to read your book in a bit more detail. You've told us about systems design and how important that is. You've talked about the board coming together and working and some of the ideas around empowerment of staff and that sort of thing. Can you give me one more big thing that the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast should take from this brand versus wild concept that you've got? I think understanding, first and foremost, understanding how the game has changed and how these old concepts of success aren't working anymore. Mm -hmm. And then understanding what is required to work again. And concepts like flexibility now beating efficiency. Mm. What does that mean? And, you know, for certain people, that might be preposterous. Yeah. But flexibility now beats efficiency. That is anti-MBA. That is anti-everything we've learned over the last 100 years. Um, or connection beating craft. There's certain concepts that are new that are required to succeed and to be resilient. And if you as a professional or your brand today are are focusing on building up your walls – you know, and trying to have the strongest castle in the <laughs> kingdom, then then you will be outmoded tomorrow. The the armies will go around your castle, and next thing you know, you're irrelevant. So so resiliency and the new principles for success, I, I think, are really important to take away from this. In the United Kingdom, 
financial services companies tend to have a pretty poor reputation with the consumer. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, life insurance companies, um, you know, their policies pay out when people die. Sometimes their policies pay out when people have a critical illness. Now, the industry has been doing a lot of work over the last 10 to 15 years to try to repair the damage that it that its reputation has. And the industry is paying out at the moment about 93% of all the claims that people who have policies make. But if you read the newspapers, you'll still see a lot of headlines, you know, XYZ Life Insurance Company turns down claim. Another headline will say this person didn't have the right sort of illness. And the public perception, Jonathan, is that only, I think the figure's about 50, only 53% of claims are paid out. That's what the public think. So the perception of the industry that the public has is massively worse than the actual reality. How do boardrooms how do the managers of these companies address that problem in a world where, you know, confirmation bias is rife because we can always find articles and videos that prove our own views? How do you how do you approach such a big perception gap? Is it is it even possible? You know, I, I think what's interesting about that is how big of an opportunity mm-hmm. does this industry face mm-hmm. when there's such a monolith of of negative perception mm-hmm. and if you look at a lot of a lot of the disruptions that have occurred over the the last 15 years it's somebody that's willing to to kind of look at the one to three main pain points mm-hmm. and take them head on with mm-hmm. courage mm-hmm. so so you know uber obviously they took on the taxi experience and it's so amazing when you think about, you know, what we used to go through to to, to hail a taxi mm-hmm. and, you know, deal with often an unfriendly driver, a, a gross experience. You had to go out and hail a cab. You know, you weren't sure if you had to go to where the cabs were. Like everything was negative about this. Uber comes along and and literally fixes most of those problems. Yeah. Or if you think of, you know, Blockbuster, you know, and, and how they so – unnecessarily went under the last the last uh, 10 years 15 years and how late fees were one of internally <laughs> they fought so much over these late fees mm-hmm. they had these major battles on the board and because they were making a lot of money from late fees well i'm sorry people hated late fees it was anti customer it was it was that as you were talking about it was sort of this inward thinking um, idea and they just couldn't let go of the money they were mm-hmm. making there and they were disrupted and and I think even more recently, T-Mobile, when you look at, you know, they were trying to sell the company and, and they kind of didn't go through. And what their new CEO did, he came in because people are so unhappy with sort of the sell carrier industry because they're hiding fees, they're making, they're, they're complexifying the sales process, they're trying to kind of hoodwink you because it, it's so hard to understand. T-Mobile comes in and says, Hey, you know, we're not the biggest, we're not the best, but we're going to be the simplest. Mm. We're going to be honest with you. We're not going to hide anything. And people responded in droves because they they were just begging for someone to be real and to be honest and to be on their side. So I would say there's a lot of good examples in other industries where when there's a monolith of people that have the same negative reaction to an industry – that means it is you're about to be disrupted, yeah. probably, and it's ripe with opportunity. Will you be the one to disrupt? 
Interesting, interesting. Just as we head towards the end, Jonathan, I always like to ask my guests to think outside of their current industry and give me an example of a marketing campaign or a product that's caught your attention and tell me why you liked it and what you've taken from it. Probably something I've really respected the last year or so has been IBM's intentional push towards what they call the cognitive future, which is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And how I think we take it for granted, but how brilliant their strategy is with Watson, Mm -hmm. where they've basically, you know, Watson isn't a thing. There is no actual Watson. You know, Watson is just basically a set of APIs. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just technical tools. But they personified this and made it almost human, which is interesting. And they've done it in a way where all of these other brands now are are partnering with them because if you are partnering with Watson, all of a sudden your brand looks better. Yeah. So they're they're drawing people to themselves. And what's what's really resp- I, what really I respect about IBM in general is they've been able to just reinvent themselves multiple times in in their history. And they're even going through a reinvention right now as they push towards cloud-based services and really focus on artificial intelligence. They've had, you know, negative growth. They've they've had losses in certain um, areas and departments. And they, as opposed to freaking out and the, you know, stock price crumbling, we understand now because they've shown us that they're investing in their future. Mm-hmm. So I think I think they're poised to really thrive over the next few years. Fantastic. And of course, you've written Brand Versus Wild. That's your business book. But I always ask my guests, Jonathan, what's the best business book you've read recently? And obviously, you can't say your own. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. You know, my probably my favorite business book ever written is a book called Getting Naked by Ooh. Patrick Lencioni. And I've had the privilege privilege of of, uh, of meeting uh, many people from his organization, and um, getting naked really gets to the heart of what business is all about. And and he's a consultant, and and it kind of comes from that angle, but it it, it helps anybody in business. And it has these two concepts that really resonate with me and, and how I approach business, and I think are a, a cornerstone of how a lot of people can be successful. And the first is entering the danger. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the bureaucracies, bureaucracies that you mentioned and kind of what I call savagery or lack of alignment in these companies that we, we've discovered through our research, um, you know, so many things are left unsaid. You have so many board meetings, so many meetings with your colleagues where there's an elephant in the room. There's something that somebody says, somebody rolls their eyes, someone else is tuned out. Um, but when you see that happening, you enter the danger. You face Whatever is going on in that room, you say, and, and you do it in the right way. And so the second concept is the kind truth, because the truth without kindness um, it can not only be hurtful, it can actually turn somebody off to whatever you're trying to convince them. But kindness without truth is impotent. Mm-hmm. So if you enter the danger with the kind truth um, and you're willing to really tackle what's going on from a relationship standpoint in your company – uh, those are the companies we find tend to be healthier and more resilient. And, and so when I read that book uh, by Patrick Lencioni, I, it just really, really struck me as true. Fantastic. I'll include links to that book and, of course, to Brand Versus Wild, your own book, in the show notes of the podcast, which you can find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash 
M-A-F, that's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F. And I'd also like to include on the show notes page, Jonathan, your contact details. So what are the be- what is the best way that people should get in touch with you? Well, of course, you can find Brand vs. Wild wherever books are sold. Um, but you can find out more about me and my company, McKee Walwork, at jonathandavidlewis.com. And you, you'll see all my links to my different social platforms where I'm very active. Um, and you can learn a little bit more about the book and my speaking and all of those different things. Great stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the Marketing and Finance Podcast, Jonathan. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Best of luck with the success of the book. And I always say this to my guests, it'd be really good to meet up with you and have a beer with you sometime. But given that you're about 5,000 miles away, it <laughs> might not just be in the next few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make a point of it if I ever get on your side of the water. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF for links to the topics, apps, and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. If you are a business person, financial services professional, or journalist, and have a marketing or finance story to tell, please get in touch. You could be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's just thoughts and opinions, okay?